Well, good morning, Grace Church. Good to see all of you. My name is Joe, and I'm the associate pastor uh, here at Grace. Uh, if you could open up our Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 17. We're going to be focusing on uh, verses 32 to 34, uh, but to give us a little bit of context, we'll be reading from beginning from chapter tw- or verse t- uh, 29. Uh, if you don't have a, a physical Bible with you, uh, you can find a pew Bible that's in front of you. Uh, it's our gift to you, uh, so please t- uh, take it home if you'd like. Our hope and prayer is that in your reading of God's Word that He will uh, reveal Himself uh, to you. And I believe, uh, on your, if you have your pew Bible, I believe it's on page 927. Now, as we turn there, let me start us off this way. Um, <clears throat> many years ago, when I was in a seminary in graduate school, uh, studying and uh, being equipped to uh, go into pastoral ministry, you had to take a preaching class. And I remember taking this class. And one of the first assignments that we had was that we actually needed to preach a whole sermon in front of the entire class. And I remember, uh, and before we did that, we actually had to submit to our professor our outline uh, for the sermon and get it approved. And I remember just being really, really excited, and I was like, you know, and this, by this time, I was a couple of years into uh, pastoral ministry, and so I've been, you know, preaching every week, basically. And one of the gifts that I've been affirmed of early on in my ministry was in the area of preaching. So I remember thinking, you know what, I got this in the bag. And I was like, you know what, I can't wait to teach these other guys, like, how it's done. And so, you know, I quickly drew up an outline of the text that was given to me, and I submitted it to the professor, and I was just waiting to hear back from him, saying, you know, this is the most marvelous sermon outline I've ever seen, you know, go preach it to the class. Uh, the next, I, so I submitted the sermon outline, and I got an email back from the professor the next day, saying, um... <clears throat> this sermon is not biblical, and so you're going to have to start from scratch, come up with a different outline that, you know, actually teaches on the Bible and send it to me for approval. And I remember I was just devastated, like, wow, like, you know, this is something that I've been doing for such a long time. And uh, it really, I have to say, though, uh, this moment was a moment of, uh, it was really a turning point for me. Because I think up to this point, I wouldn't say this as such, and I think I saw my role as a preacher, as somebody who would inspire people, who would call people to action. And if I'm being honest with you, up until this point, I don't think I saw my role as a steward of God's Word. And so this unexpected response that I got from my professor served as a moment of clarity for me. This unexpected response. And so what, we see, uh, what we'll see from this passage is this, and by the way, we've been going through a mini-sermon series uh, called Refocus, in which we've been revisiting, we've revisited our church's vision mission so that in all of the different ways that we can lose our focus as a church for us to be focused in, honed in on what God is calling us to be and what He is calling us to do. And so Pastor Aaron for the last couple of weeks have been uh, working his way through Acts chapter 17 showing us what it means to be a church that is refocused on the mission that God has called us to. And as we've been going through Acts chapter uh, Acts 17, 
we get to today's passage where we see Paul having entered into Athens and working his way through Areopagus, having seen all of the idols that are around him that grieves his heart and began, begins to preach, basically. And what we'll examine today is, in response to Paul's preaching, how the crowd responds. And we'll see that it is not what we'd expect the response to be. And in that unexpected response, we get a moment of clarity for our church. And it will give us a chance to revisit our mission as the church. And so with that said, uh, let me read this passage for you before we dive into what God has to teach us. Again, I'll start with verse 29 and work my way to the end of the chapter. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. Now, <clears throat> what we see is that Paul concludes his speech or his sermon, and we get a mixed response from the crowd, which is not what we would expect, especially in a sermon that was upholded as kind of an example for us by being included in the Bible. But in that moment, we get a moment of clarity in terms of what God is calling us to do, what our mission is. So what I'd like to do for us today is talk about the mission of the church in three ways. First, we're going to talk about what it is. And secondly, we'll talk about what its opposition is. And lastly, how it goes forward. As we consider the mission of our church at Grace, we're going to be clarified in what it is and where its opposition lies and how it goes forward. Okay? So let's go through these things. But first what it is. Now, <clears throat> we get Paul's speech, and we see that some people start mocking toward, at the conclusion of his speech. Now, what incites, what was the cause of this mocking? Well, it comes, we hear, when they heard of the resurrection. When they heard of the resurrection. Now, we're going to go into why that invited such mocking in the first place, but I want to pause here and go back a little bit and examine Paul's sermon, his gospel communication. Now, <clears throat> if you still have your Bibles, I want you to kind of take a glance at what came before and what Paul talks about because Paul enters in and here's how he uh, delivers his sermon. He says, I look around and I see that you are a very religious people. You have statues of all of these gods and you even have a statue that is dedicated to an unknown god. And he goes on in his speech about judgment and the creator God and all of those things. And he ends the speech and ends the sermon with the message of the resurrection. Now, if you were to take a look at Paul's speech and what he talks about, and if I'm being honest with you in terms of my intuition and what I understand the gospel message should be like, if I were to grade Paul's sermon here, if I'm being honest with you, 
just the way my professor graded my sermon. If I were to grade Paul's sermon and his effectiveness in preaching the gospel, I would probably give it like a C at best or a C minus. Why? Because nowhere in his message is there any mention of the name Jesus Christ, nor does he give any indication about his death on the cross for our sins. Right? You don't see that anywhere. And yet, Paul gives that, puts that forward as the way in which he was going to, uh, way in which he was proclaiming the gospel to them. Right? No mention of Jesus, no mention of his death on the cross for our sins. Now, you look at that and say, how in the world is Paul going to communicate the gospel and leave those things out? And yet, Paul does this over and over and over again in communicating the gospel, where the death of Jesus for our sins is not put at the forefront of his gospel communication. As a matter of fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we get to the heart of his message where he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He says to you, you know what? If Jesus was not raised from the dead, I as a preacher and as a missionary might as well pack my bags and go home and you should too because none of this matters. He doesn't say, if Jesus didn't go to the cross for our sins, all of this is in vain. No, he puts forth the resurrection uh, and puts that in the pride of place in his gospel proclamation. Now that, if you're being honest, and you know, if I'm being honest with myself, that is new to us, is it not? Because if somebody on the street were to come up to you and say, I hear that you are a Christian, what does it tell me? What does it mean to be saved? Tell me the gospel. How would you say it? It would go something like this, and this comes from a uh, popular Christian book. I'm not going to tell you what book that is because it's not a great book, but this is how it talks about, articulates the gospel. It says this, because Jesus was executed on the cross, it is now possible for any or all of us through repentance, baptism, and obedience to recover the magnificent relationship with God that was destroyed in days gone by. So far, so good. If you and I accept the death and resurrection of Jesus as a living, divine, working mechanism in our own lives, we shall, and listen to this, one day go home to God and find peace. The Holy Spirit sent by Jesus himself after his death offers support and strength for those who call on him. Now that's a fine gospel presentation, isn't it? But what Paul would say in response to this is say, yeah, that's fine. It's accurate. But it's woefully incomplete. It is woefully incomplete. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what it tells us is that it is not just that somehow Jesus died, you know, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and we come to him and receive him as our Lord and Savior, as we talk about quite often, that you are, some, you are forgiven and you are accepted. Not that that is bad, but it is leaving out a whole chunk of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ through his resurrection, namely, that in the present time, that he has entered into the world and brought the kingdom reality in the here and now. That the king has come, that it is not just that our individually our sins are forgiven and enjoy a right relationship with God. It is much more than that. 
Paul would say, your notion, your understanding of the gospel is way too narrow. Because in fact, what Jesus has accomplished through his resurrection means that the, cos- the, the, the trajectory of the history of the cosmos has been altered. Because God, in the middle of history, brought his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It is inaugurated in the here and now. And our narrow understanding of the gospel as forgiveness from God is woefully incomplete. And now, can't you see that it makes perfect sense for Paul to put forward the resurrection as his gospel message? Why? Because, again, without the resurrection, none of what he did mattered. Why? Because if Jesus died for us on the cross for our sins, and if he stayed dead, he will be no different than any other martyr that came before him. Maybe when we think about Jesus, maybe he might make us feel good. Maybe he might get us to be emotional. But there is absolutely no power there to change anybody's life. No wonder why, if you look at the disciples that followed Jesus around, they were with Jesus for three years. And what happens as Jesus is going to the cross? They all desert him, right? out of fear. It is not until they see Jesus risen from the dead, their lives actually change. It is a resurrection that gives us power and validity to the mission of our church. But here's what else. When we think about the resurrection and the way Paul taught it, in some ways it was not a novel concept. Right, the Jewish people at the time actually also taught resurrection from the dead. But what Judaism taught was that the resurrection would happen at the end of history, when all is said and done. But what Paul was saying was, no, 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 no. The resurrection the reality that you are looking forward to, the kingdom of God that you are looking forward to, you don't need to wait till the end of time for that to happen, because in Jesus Christ, what he had done Fast forward it. The kingdom of God that you are all waiting for has entered in in the middle of history. So you don't need to wait until the end of history. <clears throat> so Paul's message was that there was an invasion of God's kingdom, reality, right? Piercing through the reality of the here and now and has been inaugurated. And that was what drove an entire movement of Christians to lay down their lives. Because when Christians thought about God's kingdom, it was no longer something vague and abstract that was going to happen at the end of time. No, it was something that entered into the history of here and now and can be experienced in the here and now. And that's what drove Paul. That's what put the fire in his bones. Because when he thought about salvation, it wasn't something that was to be waited for the end of time. In the, at the end of time, when all is said and done, if you're a good enough person, if you're a religious enough person, when Paul thought about salvation, it was something that could be tasted in the here and now. That's what drove him through all of the suffering and the mocking and the persecution that he's experienced because he could taste it. I remember some years ago, uh, Helen, my wife, took uh, both our children uh, to Korea and she was there for a couple of months. 
And so I was basically, for the first time in like forever, I was like a bachelor. And, you know, for the first couple of days, I was like, this is great. I get to sleep, you know? And I have to tell you, I completely let myself go. And I realized, like, there was just no point in living. <laughs> so, so, so I was basically living off of instant noodles. I had sodium just running through my veins, you know? My apart, our, our small two-bedroom apartment in Manhattan was a complete mess. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to clean. You know, I'll, I'll get my house in order and... I'll be fit and ready, you know, for when the, bit, you know, when the kids come back. None of that happened. And it wasn't until like two days before Helen came, I, I just, it just dawned on me like she's going to get here. And she's going to see the mess that is my own. So that's when I, I, have to, I have to tell you, I took, an enti- I took two days off. <laughs> Spent the entire day just cleaning up our apartment. And I have to tell you, there was not much to clean up because it was such a small apartment, and yet everything stacked up. I was doing laundry. I was... Why? Because the return of the wife went from an abstract reality to a present reality. It's such a weird example. <laughs> but when the New Testament writers, Apostle Paul himself, thought about salvation, thought about the kingdom of God, thought about heaven. The fact of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ brought it from being an abstract reality to a present reality. It is here and now and can be experienced. And that's what drove the Apostle Paul. And that, friends, is what fuels the mission of the church. That is what needs to fuel the mission of our church. Theologian and author N.T. Wright, and I'm going to be quoting quoting him quite a bit throughout the sermon, says this, salvation, listen carefully to what he says, salvation is not going to heaven. But salvation rather is being raised to life in God's new heaven and new earth. But as soon as we put it like this, we realize that the New Testament is full of hints, indications, and downright assertions that this salvation isn't just something we have to wait for in the long-distance future. We can enjoy it here and now, genuinely anticipating in the present what is to come in the future. And friends, that is what the mission of our church is. For those who are Christians that have experienced the love of Jesus and now enjoy the presence of the risen Savior in our hearts by His Spirit, it is our job now as a collective to give the watching world around us a glimpse of this kingdom a taste, a foretaste of heaven. And nothing less than that ought to be the mission of our church. Now, how do we do this? In a myriad of ways. It is through our acts of justice. As we advocate for and fight for those who are the marginalized in our society, 
those who are experiencing oppression. What are we doing? We are giving a glimpse of heaven to the watching world in which God is going to take every wrong and put it right. It is through our acts of beauty, both aesthetic beauty that we get to experience here at church through our singing and the like, but through the moral beauty that tells the world that there is a better way to live than what they've experienced in the past. It is through our act of sharing the gospel through evangelism, not through moral coercion or through guilt tripping or through some kind of intellectual jujitsu where we try and prove that there is a God, but it is through the proclamation that God is God, that Jesus is Lord, that the powers of evil have been defeated, that God's new world has begun. Through our friendships, through our acts of sacrificial love, in laying down our power and privilege for those who don't have them. It is to be a signpost to heaven. Do you see that Paul's message of the resurrection clarifies our mission to be a signpost of heaven? Our disciple-making, our glorifying God and all of those things is done by proclaiming the victory of Jesus over sin and death. And to announce to the watching world that you don't need to wait till the end of time to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That the kingdom of heaven is here. It is here now. Now before we go on, let me just say a quick pastoral word here. Before we take on God's mission of the resurrection and the arrival of the kingdom out into the world, you and I are going to need to experience it in the here and now. Do you live in victory? Or do you live in fear? Do you live in defeat? Because a resurrection tells us that it actually happened. And if you believe in Jesus, and you place your trust in Him, you are united with Him in His death, and also united with him in his resurrection. So are you cowering in fear as you live your spiritual life before God, always thinking you're not doing enough? And I'll get to this more a little bit, but I do need to mention it here now. Or are you living in the resurrection reality of the gospel that tells you that there is nothing to be done because Jesus already rose from the dead? Unless you live in this victory, you and I will be useless as we carry out the mission of God. And that's the message of the gospel that tells us that there's a new king in town and he's inaugurated his kingdom. And so live in victory in him. Right? That's the mission of the church. But secondly, let's talk a little about, a bit about its opposition. Right? And so Paul Uh, What we find here in uh, verse uh, 32 is that when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, what happened? Some mocked. Now, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But he finds that he finds opposition. And so let's talk a little bit about why he was opposed. Now, I want to talk about two elements, two aspects of opposition here. Uh, One simply is that there was intellectual opposition to the message of the resurrection. 
right? Intellectual opposition, right? Because it went against the thinking of the day, right? I just said earlier, right? Uh, the Jewish folks, uh, those who were religious at the time, thought that resurrection was going to happen at the end of history and could not fathom a, a scenario in which it would happen in the middle of history. So they were against it. But you had the so-called secularists of the time that were functionally uh, agnostic at best or atheistic, right? The, the Greeks of the time and the Sadducees who denied that there was resurrection uh, at all. And so it simply went against kind of the intellectual thinking of the day. And that's certainly something that Paul addresses, right? If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, for example, he says, listen, I'm passing to you what, was, what has been passed down to me, this message of the resurrection, that Jesus rose again from the dead. And he gives an intellectual argument and says, listen, it's not just me or other folks uh, that were close to Jesus that saw him. It was 500 eyewitnesses. So you want, you want to take umbrage with that? Go ask them. Right? Basically, he makes an intellectual case for the resurrection. And we would do well to learn from Paul's example Right? And when the world opposes the reality of the resurrection on intellectual grounds, it would, do well, it would do us well to be equipped in that way. And so for those of us who are taking notes, I want to give you kind of two recommended books. One is by an, uh, a man named N.T. Wright. Uh, the book is called Surprised by Hope. Uh, for those of you that are kind of more academically driven and are uh, open to reading a thousand pages of academic work on this, it's called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Uh, it's a longer volume. Another really kind of popular level, uh, easy reading is uh, called A Reason for God by Tim Keller. Uh, those two resources I commend to you. And we would do well to be able to address the kind of intellectual uh, arguments that people have against Christianity. But what we see here in the text is that the opposition to Paul's message of the resurrection goes a little bit deeper than that. It's not just intellectual opposition, it's spiritual. Why? We see that people were mocking him. Now, here's what's interesting. Areopagus at the time, right? Uh, Pastor Aaron uh, reminded us last week, I believe. It was people were arguing stuff all the time. They sat around, it says, and they did nothing but tell kind of novel ideas. And so it was a society that was as tolerant as you get, could get of novel ideas. And yet, when it comes to the message of the resurrection, there is a little personal element to their disagreement. It's not just that they disagreed with it intellectually. There was something in them that stirred up their heart to lead them to be derisive, to mock, to make fun of this idea. Now, why is that? It's because spiritually speaking, resurrection if we understood its implication, is looking to upend our lives. Here's what N.T. Wright has to say. I believe the quote is, uh, it's not up on the screen yet, but it could be. Um, there it is. Let me read this for you. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth uh, reading in its entirety. It's the Herods, the Caesars, and the Sadducees of this world ancient and modern, were and are eager to rule out all possibility of actual resurrection. They are staking a counterclaim on the real world. It is the real world that the tyrants and bullies, including intellectual and cultural tyrants and bullies, try to rule by force, only to discover that in order to do so, they have to quash all rumors of 
resurrection, rumors that would imply that their greatest weapons, death and deconstruction, are not, after all, omnipotent. But it is the real world that the real God has made and still grieves over. It is a real world that in the earliest stories of Jesus' resurrection was decisively and forever reclaimed by that event, an event which demanded to be understood not as bizarre miracle, but as the beginning of the new creation. It is the real world that, however complex this may become, historians are committed to studying. And however dangerous this may turn out to be, it is the real world in and for which Christians are committed to living and where necessary dying. Nothing less is demanded by the God of creation, the God of justice, the God revealed in and as the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. Friends, here's the threat that was posed by the resurrection. The threat is that the kingdom of God and all that comes with it because of the resurrection has come near. And whenever the kingdom of God comes near, our own kingdom is threatened. It's impinged upon. See, Areopagus, like I mentioned earlier, was filled with gods, filled with ideas about gods and ultimate reality and theories and the like. And so people were discussing that all the time. And it was, it's fine. It's a tolerant society and, and everything goes and we can talk about him and that's good because we all respect each other, right? But here comes the gospel that says there is an absolute reality, there is absolute truth, and there is the one God, the God of Israel, and one Savior, Jesus Christ. And the resurrection was his way of intruding upon the kingdom building of humanity to say the kingdom of God is here. It is no longer in theory. It is no longer abstract. It is tangible and it's here now. And that's what threatened the very lives and the worldview of everybody that was listening in to that message. See, it's one thing when it was in the abstract. But man, when it happened in history and in time and place, that's when it came close. And that's what the world sees. And if you tease out the implications of the resurrection, that is what is so threatening to the world. But let me pause here and say, if you and I are being honest with ourselves, it is threatening to us too. And I took a lot of time this week actually to meditate on this. And I have to say, when I think about the resurrection, it's what threatens my kingdom as well. Why? Because every single choice that we make in our lives is a choice between my kingdom and the kingdom of God. Am I going to spend more time at work or am I going to spend more time with my family and build into my relationships? Every time I spend a dollar, am I spending this uh, for others around me and in service of them and for God's kingdom or am I going to spend it on myself? 
Anytime I have free time, am I going to spend this time reading Scripture and being in God's Word? Or am I going to spend this time doom-scrolling through my phone? When I see others, am I going to take the posture of judgment upon them because that makes me feel good? Or am I going to now uh, put my mental efforts and energy towards examining myself? Every single choice that we have in life is either going to be in service of your kingdom or is going to be in service of God. And let me tell you, for those of you that have grown up in the church, consider yourself to be very religious. It's going to be all the more easier for you to be convinced, to deceive yourself into thinking that you are actually, you're serving God's kingdom when you're actually serving your own. And I have to tell you as a preacher and as a pastor myself, <laughs> that deception is real. And so can't you see that the resurrection is a threat? And that's what incited, invited uh, the opposition. Now, let me just quickly talk a little bit about this. Right? What does the kingdom of God like? What does it look like to serve God's kingdom and not mine? Well, we get... I mean, we just went through a sermon series over the summer on the Sermon on the Mount. We get what God's kingdom looks like in Matthew chapter 5, right? Who are the ones that get into God's kingdom? To whom belong the kingdom of God, right? Jesus talks about this. Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, the ones who are meek, and the ones who are persecuted, right? Those are the ones who get in. The ones who are proud of their religion, the ones who think high and mighty of themselves, right? The ones who are in power, right, and are abusing that power, they're the ones who are on the outside looking in. Or more succinctly, as Jesus says it in Luke 9, these are the ones who get in. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Here's the issue. When we talk about the kingdom of God, impinging upon our kingdom, the reason why it's so hard for us to give ourselves to his kingdom is because God, in God's kingdom, everything is upside down. So you want success? Go through suffering and failure for the sake of others. You want to be at the head of the table? Go to the end of the table first. You want to be blessed? Be persecuted for my name. And that's where you'll find your blessing. Everything about the kingdom of God, or everything about our kingdom building, right? Everything that we think about success and all that's involved with it, it's upended by the kingdom of God. And that's why when it starts impinging upon our kingdom, we get so uncomfortable. Friends, let me invite you to go back and read the Sermon on the Mount again, Matthew chapter 5 and 6, and see if your soul feels settled. See if your soul feels comfortable and warm. I guarantee you it won't. But it's God's kingdom tugging at your heart and saying, whose kingdom will you choose? And friends, when we choose God's kingdom, that's when his mission can go forward. But <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? To deny ourselves, to take up the cross 
Those are not pleasant things to think about. So how in the world is God's mission going to go forward with all the opposition it faces from the world and from within our hearts? Let's go over the last point, right? How is kingdom, how is the mission going to move forward? Now, if you uh, take a look towards the end of the chapter here, we see that some mock and others kind of show intellectual curiosity. I want to hear you again about this. We see that Paul goes out from their midst. And in verse 34, we do see some fruit there, right? Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and the Areopagite and a woman named Demaris and others with him. Now, it is in this verse that we see the priority of the mission and the pace of the mission as it goes forward. Now, here's what I mean. By all accounts, if you were to read the response of the crowd, we could tell that this was not a great sermon. It was not a successful speech. Right? If you read in Acts chapter 2, right, there's a whole crowd that's gathered and Peter begins to preach. And what happens at the end? 3,000 people came forward and were baptized. In Paul's case... He preaches a sermon that he poured his heart into. Some mocked. Others were, yeah, okay. It was not a successful speech. But here's what we learn. By the fact that this sermon, this speech, is elevated and takes its place in Scripture as an example for us. The priority of our mission going forward cannot be in the metric of success that is dictated by the world. See, by all accounts, the way the world would look at this instance of ministry in Paul's life would say that was a failure because of the response of the crowd. And yet, it's in Scripture. Here's what that tells us. For you and I, for us as a church together, as we go on mission, our metric of success cannot be about the numbers cannot be about how rapidly our church grows, cannot be about how rapidly we are growing as a staff. And I mention all of those things because we, by God's grace, are experiencing that in our church right now. It is God's grace, yes, that more people are coming to hear about the gospel, but I can tell you that if we set our sights on those things as a metric of success and pat ourselves on the back and say we are doing well, we are not being faithful to God's calling as the church because that is not the metric of success in the Bible. What is the metric of success? Again, Sermon on the Mount. Are we prioritizing the marginalized among us? Are we caring for one another in our midst? How faithful are we in proclaiming the gospel through our word and deed? Are we, in fact, living out the identity that God has given to us as a signpost of heaven? Are we faithful in trying to be the alternate kingdom, presenting an alternate reality before the watching world and presenting a better way? That is the metric of success according to the Bible. Numbers, God could not care less. And I want to drive this home because I'm not, you know, for those of you that pay attention to these kinds of things, you might have noticed, there have been a number of failings in recent times of high-profile church leaders and pastors that have had, in the eyes of the world, very successful ministries. And, you know, in the light of their moral failures and abuse and those kinds of things, you have a whole host of people that are coming to their defense and saying, you know what, they're not perfect people. But did you look at how many people have been baptized through their ministry? Do you, do you see how many people have come to know Jesus because of what they've done? Do you see the growth of their church and all of the good work they've done? And I say, wait, hold on a second. 
Where in the Bible does it say that a successful ministry is one that is growing in numbers? There's none. And that means we cannot be sucked in by the metric of the success of the kingdom of human beings when what we're trying to build is the kingdom of God. They're completely at odds with one another. We see that there's some fruit, right? Dionysius the Areopagite and uh, what's her name? Damaris, right? Who had some, happened to be a woman. Now, this verse is really interesting because Dionysius the Areopagite, right, comes to believe, and by all accounts, he was probably there in person, right? Areopagus, right? He's an Areopagite. And so by all accounts, it's likely that he heard the message and he was perhaps one of the few that was convinced to believe and to join in Paul. But what's really interesting about Damaris is that she is a woman. Now in the day, in Areopagus, with all of the idea exchange that was happening, what we have to note is that all of the idea exchange happened among men. Because in that day, women were not allowed in that setting. And so what we, what we see from the text is that this couldn't have been Damaris just kind of answering, right, putting her trust in Jesus at the moment. What likely ended up happening was that she must have heard Paul give a gospel presentation elsewhere. And having mulled over, it's likely that the penny finally dropped for her at a later time and she decides to believe and follow Paul. And here's what we learn about how the mission goes forward. We don't get to dictate when and how God decides to work. Paul preached the gospel somewhere and moved along, and all that time God was working in Demaris's heart, and finally the light bulb went out, went off, went on. No wonder why. When Jesus himself talks about the advancement of the kingdom of God, he talks about it in agricultural terms. Right? You sow a mustard seed into the ground. And you nurture it, and you have no idea if it's going to amount to anything. It is a tiny little seed, but what happens? A tree springs up over time. What does that tell us about the mission of the church? That means, for us, all we are being called to do is sow seeds by being faithful with our lives and our witness before the watching world, by giving our lives in service unto others, and being faithful before a God who inaugurated his kingdom and trusting in the victory of Jesus as we live day by day. One of the unfortunate developments in the American church in its recent history is that we've come to idolize speed. So we want to have altar calls, We want to have street evangelisms and want to see result right away. I'm not saying those things are bad in and of themselves, but one of the unfortunate side effects of that is that we've come to value efficiency the same way the world does. But that is simply not how the scripture works, does it? God works in his time. But let me just kind of say this as a personal note. For those of you that are experiencing frustration in your life and saying, you know what, I put my trust in Jesus and I'm looking to grow. It's just not happening in my life. Pastor, what should I do? What am I doing wrong? And I look at them and most of the times what I'll say is, chances are you're not doing anything wrong. 
Because God is simply not interested in you being the kind of cookie-cutter Christian that you read about in popular Christian literature. Nor is He interested in meeting the timelines of the world. No, God is uniquely interested in you. So why don't you put your trust in a God who is at work in your life, who loves you and has given Himself for you in Jesus, and trust that in your unique way, in your unique time, God will do His thing. Why? Because the kingdom is here already. You don't need to feel so hurried. God is at work. But with that said, let me just say one more thing as we look to close. All of that being said, it can be frustrating, can it? To daily choose the values and the priorities of God's kingdom over your own kingdom building. So there's turmoil within you. Not only that, there's the world out there that is imposing its values and our priorities on you. How in the world are we going to live out of this kingdom reality? Especially when there's so much at stake. And we see this example from Paul, don't we? He lived a life of suffering. Shipwrecked, beaten to a pulp, jailed, How in the world did he do it? We get a glimpse of how he did it in Philippians chapter 3. If you look at this passage, you don't need to turn there, but he talks about, he he lists his resume, basically. Here are all the ways in which I was successful in the eyes of the world. And he says, I count them as nothing. I count them as rubbish and garbage. And then he goes on to say this. Why? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. He's saying, I toss those things aside because I want to experience Jesus. But listen to what he says in the very next verse. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but he says this, I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What drove Paul? through all of that suffering and opposition within himself and outside of himself, knowing that he belongs to the king of the universe. It's not that he needed to press on to enter into the kingdom of God and to be called his own. It's that Jesus rose again from the dead for him knowing that his identity is secure in Jesus is what drove him forward in his mission. And the battle, friends, is not about you gritting your teeth and saying every decision that I make, I need to make for God. It's the, 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 the struggle for you going forward is not gritting your teeth and saying I need to live a certain way to reflect the values of the kingdom. No, the struggle is not there. Those are the outworkings of the greater struggle that you have. And the struggle that you have that you and I need to be on is to live in and out of the identity that has already been purchased for you in Jesus Christ when He rose from the dead to believe that to live in that to remind one another of that because your identity is secure in him and that is all made possible because of Jesus Christ see all throughout Jesus's life and ministry he never lost sight of who he was even in his 
times of suffering, as he was going to the cross, he never lost sight of the fact that he was the Son of God. When he was being mocked, what does he cry out? He says, Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But there was one time, there was one time he lost sight of his identity. It was on the cross when the Father looked away from him. He cries out, not my Father. Cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, you and I, our identity is secured in Jesus Christ because he lost it for our sake. And he was willing to go to the cross to bring us into his kingdom so that our God is not just our king, but our Father. See, friends, that is what you and I are going to need if we're going to live and be on mission, to be secure in this identity. And that is what God is calling us to. And so, friends, as I close, let me just say this. Why don't we refocus on the risen King Jesus who made us his own? And may we make it our life mission to make the resurrection reality our own to let it seep into every nook and cranny of our lives and live out our kingdom values before the world as God looks to yield a harvest among us right here at Grace Church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your son Jesus who wrestled sin and death into the ground, who rose victorious for us to live in victory in light of the resurrection, and we ask that by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come into our hearts, that we may live out kingdom values before the watching world because our identity is secure in you. And so by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, may it be so. For your glory and for the sake of the world, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.